I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're continuing our study through book, the book of 1 Corinthians. And this morning we begin our study of chapter 15 with the first 11 verses. This is the word of God. Please give it your full attention. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that, was with me, that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Imagine with me for just a moment that you were on a research team for one of the top world-renowned scientists at Penn State. And this scientist comes to you one day and he says, I have made the most important scientific discovery in the history of mankind. I found a formula for a chemical compound that can literally fix all the problems on Earth. It has miraculous restorative powers. In a medicinal form, it will both cure and pre prevent all known diseases, and also will even correct every abnormality. It will also heal every kind of mental illness known to man. And not only that, but it actually will change the nature of human beings so that they're kind and generous and loving. If it is applied to the animal kingdom, it'll cure all their diseases and take them, make them healthy and take away their defects and take away all the parasites. And it'll even change their nature to be compliant and kind. You could apply it to the plant kingdom and those plants would be cured of their diseases and they would grow healthy and strong and fruitful. He says, this is, this is astounding. This is gonna change all the earth. But the problem is I'm dying. Matter of fact, I only have a few hours to live. And so I'm entrusting this formula to you. What would you do in that situation? I hope you do two things. First of all, you would tell as many people about this formula as quickly as you possibly could. 
Secondly, you would guard that formula with your life. Not allow it to be tampered with, lest it be corrupted and lose its power. Well, as great as that scientific discovery and as great as that formula would be, it pales in comparison to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This universe was once a paradise without sin, without sickness, without disease, without defect, without parasite, without conflict, but sin entered into this universe. And because of sin, we no longer have perfect people and we no longer have a perfect creation. But the gospel is the means by which God has ordained that this fallen universe be restored to its original intent. And that work is going on even as we speak. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 and 24, In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And that is why at the end of scripture, the risen Christ stands before us and he says, Behold, I am making all things new. The means by which he is making all things new today is the gospel. So we should be motivated to do two things. Get the word of the gospel out as quickly as possible to as many as possible. And secondly, to guard the content of the gospel with our lives. And that's really my point based on this passage today. That's the application. As we come to chapter 15, we have here the longest chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians for good reason. Because Paul is addressing the most important topic in the entire scriptures. This is one of the most glorious chapters of scripture. I've been looking forward to digging into chapter 15 for weeks, months. And that's not just because I had to go through chapter 14 to get to it. Chapter 15 is about the heart of our faith. It's what we live for. It's what we proclaim. It's what everything is about for us, the gospel. You see, this is a new section. And Paul, we've seen already going through 1 Corinthians that when he gets to a new section, often he'll just change topics entirely because he's basically got a list of serious problems that he's been addressing in the church in Corinth. And when he comes to chapter 15, it's, he begins... A new topic and the reason he devotes such a long section to this is because it was so important because what was happening is that people were messing with the gospel in Corinth he's no longer addressing issues of worship but he goes to the core of why they worship a more serious problem he doesn't actually state what the specific problem was until verse 12, and we didn't read that verse yet. We'll get to that one next week. But in verse 12, if you just want to look ahead, that's where he states what the problem was in Corinth. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which is what we're dealing with in the passage today, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
Now, we can't be entirely sure what the false teaching was, what the heresy was that was beginning to spread in the Corinthian church, but what we know about the historical context gives us a good guess. We know that in the Greek culture, for generations before this time, Greek philosophy had taught that the body is evil, but the spirit is good. That salvation for the Greek philosopher was to be released from the material world and particularly to be released from the material body to be freed into the realm of the pure spirits. That that's what salvation was about and usually the means by which that happened was through knowledge. But you can see why this would conflict with the gospel. Matter of fact, it would be abhorrent to the Greek mindset to say that salvation involved being, having your soul combined forever with a resurrected body. To them, that's, you know, you've been released from prison. Why would you go back and live in prison? We'll look more at that next week and how the biblical, even the Old Testament mindset conflicted with the mindset of the Greek culture. But as we saw back in chapter 2, that was the problem in Corinth is they were looking to the world for wisdom instead of looking to God's word for wisdom. And isn't that a relevant issue? Paul's going to nip this heresy in the bud, but in order to do that, he needs to lay before them the genuine thing. If the gospel that they were headed towards is so wrong, then what is the true gospel? What's the most important thing? He says in verse 3, I was struck by the phrase, he says, that the gospel is of first importance. There is no higher priority in the teaching of the church. We forget that sometimes. There is no higher priority than preaching the gospel. And if you don't get the gospel right, then everything else you preach and everything else you do is meaningless. Ministry to the poor, a great music program, a great youth program, a great missions program, all of this, to borrow a phrase from chapter 13, is like noisy gongs and clanging cymbals if it's not driven by a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel. Everything that is done in the name of Christian ministry that isn't based in the gospel is like the grass of the field here today and gone tomorrow. Well, verses 1 and 2, Paul begins by saying he wants to remind the Corinthians. And what he wants to remind them of is what he first proclaimed to them. He says in verse 1, we're talking here about the origin of the gospel. Where does it come from? Before he talks about the content of it, he wants to talk about where did it come from. And this is crucial. Verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. And then down in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul received this gospel. He hasn't defined it yet, but he received it. And then he says, I faithfully communicated it, delivered it into your hands. And what he's talking about there was a very well-understood, well-established commitment of Jewish leadership. Remember, Paul was a rabbi. This is rabbinic wisdom, rabbinic commitment that he's reflecting here. 
Back when we talked about the transmission of the scriptures and the authority of scriptures in our Sunday school class, we talked about the extent to which the scribes in Israel went to make sure that when they copied the scriptures, that they made sure that they copied it, every jot and tittle, every small mark, they made sure it was exactly, because that was their responsibility. They were given the scriptures, they were to copy the scriptures so that it could be handed on to the next generation and to the world. And so Paul's talking like a good rabbi. He says, I have received the truth and I have faithfully transmitted it to you. It's in your hands. Remember what Paul said to his student Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Listen to how this works even from Paul to the next generation of church leadership with Timothy. He says, follow this pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So you get see phase one and two. Listen exactly to the, pattern, the exact pattern of, this, of the true words that I have spoken to you. Now that you have received it, guard it. It's a deposit. It's an extremely valuable, the most valuable thing. Guard that deposit with your life. And then again, chapter 2 says this. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you see that, that most solemn and most holy, most, most awesome responsibility that anybody who handles the word of God has is to make sure that you receive it faithfully, you guard it as a deposit given to you by the Lord, and then you transmit it to those exactly as you received it so that they can transmit it to others. In that sense, as high and noble as the, the role of teacher is in the church or preacher is in the church, in that sense, it's just like being the UPS man. You have something delivered into your hands, and the expectation is that you will deliver it to somebody else exactly as it is, no more, no less. And that's the job of the teacher. I'm struck by how in Scripture, I've always noticed this in Scripture, in the very beginning of the scripture, the first five books, the Torah, in the first five books you have a clear statement about this responsibility. In Deuteronomy it says, do not add to or take away from what God has revealed. Right smack in the middle of the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, it says the same thing again. Do not add to nor take away from what God has revealed. And then at the very end of scripture, in the very last chapter of Revelation, it says the same thing again. Do not add to nor take away from what's been revealed to you. But it, we haven't yet answered the question, what's the origin of it? Where did it come from? We talked about how Paul faithfully received it, guarded it, and passed it on. But where did it come from originally? Well, Paul does, he's assuming they understand that here. But he states it boldly and clearly over in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. For he says, I, for you, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It isn't the gospel of Paul. It's not the gospel of the early church. It's not the gospel of the apostles. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I received it by revelation directly from him. It's interesting, in Galatians chapter 2, in defending his apostleship, he actually mentions the fact 
that the other apostles confirmed that the gospel that he was preaching was the same gospel that they were preaching to the Jews. But he's, he makes it very clear, I did not receive it from them, but I received it from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all the credibility of the gospel rests on this claim that Paul and the other apostles made, that what we gave to you was the very gospel of God. It was revealed to us by the risen Jesus Christ. It rests on his authority, no man's authority. That's the origin of the gospel. Well, then Paul goes on to talk about the content of the gospel. And those of you who've been in the church all your life, those of you who've been a Christian for decades, don't tune me out here, and that's always my fear, is when I say I'm going to talk about the content of the gospel, you say, oh, I know all this. I can check my phone. I can check out here for a while. and Let me know when you get back to something that's new and innovative. It is so important that we always be going back to the real gospel because we are surrounded, we are immersed, we're pounded on day in and day out with false gospels. And one of the purposes of coming together on the Lord's Day is to make sure that we're always going back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in verses 3 through 8, Paul gives us the gospel. And as I read those verses, what's interesting to me is it's a early form, a primitive form, if you will, of the Apostles' Creed. A century later, we believe, the Apostles' Creed was written, but here you have the core of it, the most important parts of the Apostles' Creed in what Paul says in verses 3 through 8. And as you look at those verses, let me read them for you again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The first thing that you'll notice as you look carefully at that recounting of the essential truths of the gospel is that the core beliefs of Christianity aren't a set of moral values. The core beliefs of Christianity aren't philosophical statements. They're not even abstract theological statements. They're historical facts. Think about that. That's unique to Christianity. That the core of our faith is about what God has done in space and time in history. It's all about that. Paul lists four historical events here, but if you notice carefully, it's really two great events that are confirmed by other historical events. Two great events. All that we believe, all that we stand on, all that we proclaim is based on two historical events that are confirmed by two other events, as Paul lays them out here. The first historical event, of course, he states in this phrase, Christ died for our sins. And yes, I know that there's more than a historical statement there. The historical statement is that he died. No one could deny that. Matter of fact, very, very few people deny that these days, that Christ actually lived and he actually died. But it's the phrase for our sins that makes all the difference in the world. What Paul is doing is he's stating an historical fact and then given a, a very brief form of its purpose. And that's what the whole rest of the New Testament is about. Why did Christ die? 
in the way that he did. That's what the whole rest of the New Testament is about. The atonement. That Christ died in our place. That you and I deserve to be there, not only bearing that incredible suffering, physically speaking, but in bearing the spiritual separation from God the Father that he endured that is hell in and of itself. He endured that on the cross in our place because that's what you and I deserved. Christ died for our sins. Even atheists believe that Christ lived and died. But true believers believe that he died for our sins. And then he goes on to say he was buried. That goes together with him dying. This burial in and of itself is not significant, but what is significant is it confirms that he really died. In time and space and history, he died for our sins and was buried. But then we come to the second great fact of our faith. He was raised on the third day. This is why we know that his death was for our sins. Because God the Father raised him from the dead. The only human being that's ever conquered death by his own power. God the Father, God the Spirit raised him from the dead. And in raising from the dead, what the God the Father was saying to the world is, I accept this Passover lamb's sacrifice, this cleansing, this washing through the blood, I accept it on the behalf of all for whom he died. And it showed that in being raised from the dead, he had conquered death and he had conquered the power of sin that led to death. But then again, he gives numerous historical examples of how God confirmed that second great truth of our faith. He says he appeared in his resurrected body a literal, glorified, but human body. In his resurrected body, he appeared to Cephas, he said. Of course, is another name for Peter. And we know, according to the resurrection accounts, that he appeared to Peter individually on the day of his resurrection and then with the groups, but also later individually at the end of the Gospel of John when he restored him to full ministry by grace. He talks about an appearance to the twelve, at that point, obviously, after the resurrection, it wasn't literally 12, but that's still the name by what they, they went, the apostles. And he appeared to 10 of them on the day of the resurrection, and a week later, he appeared to 11 of them. And they all saw him, touched him, heard him. And then he states something next that nowhere else in the New Testament do you find this data. You don't find this information. It's fascinating, though. He says at one time, between his resurrection, leaving that empty tomb, and before he ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, at some point, he made an appearance to 500 of his disciples at one time. And Paul is saying, argue with that. You don't believe me? He says, most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Confirmation that he was raised from the dead on the third day. Then he mentions James. James is an interesting person to single out because James was the brother of Jesus. And we know that before Jesus died on the cross, his brothers didn't believe him, believe in him. But after the resurrection, they were with the disciples in the upper room and they were a part of the early church. And a matter of fact, J James goes on to be the key leader in the church in Jerusalem, as we see in Acts chapter 15. The power 
of the death and resurrection of Christ. And then he mentions all the apostles again. And probably what he's referring to there is when Christ appeared to his apostles at the time of his ascension into heaven. They not only saw him resurrected again, but they saw him bodily taken up into heaven to the right hand of God the Father to take his throne as the King of kings and Lord of lords. But then in verse 8, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. What's interesting is that twice Paul uses the phrase, in accordance with the scriptures. And notice that that phrase, in accordance with the scriptures, is attached to the two important elements, historical elements that he mentioned here of the gospel. He was died and was buried. He, was di- he died according to the scriptures for our sins, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Because that, in one sense, is the most important confirmation, is that God's word not only affirmed his death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead, but it prophesied it for centuries beforehand in great detail. And the scriptures as a whole lay out for us the covenant of grace by which God has reconciled himself to his people through the shed blood of atonement that Christ carried out for us on the cross. Christ died for our sins. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If somebody asks you what's the gospel, that's enough. That's the gospel. And without those two cosmic historical events, there is no gospel. And yet so many organizations that go by the name of church try to take those two historical events and their significance out of what they call the gospel. Many churches deny that these facts are historical, and yet they call themselves churches, and they call what they teach Christianity. Many churches will say they believe in a crucifixion and a resurrection of Christ, but then they redefine what it means and what the purpose of the death and resurrection is. Many more churches actually will say they believe in the that Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day, they'll say it in their statement of faith, you'll find it on their website, but you won't hear it from the pulpit. You won't hear it in their studies of scripture. You won't hear it in the life of the congregation. There's a new movie out called The Shack. It's based on a book that came out a few years ago called The Shack. That's the kind of theology of that book and that movie that you get when you take the gospel out of Christianity purports to be a representation of Christianity because the three of the main characters are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Talks in the language of Christianity. I think it even talks about crucifixion, maybe even mentions resurrection. I'm basing this on what I know of the book. I don't know anything about the movie. Please don't watch it. It's just don't, don't. But, but don't go out and protest it either. I hate it when we call attention to heresy and make people all curious about what it is. Just, just don't support it. That's all I'm asking. Um, but When you take Christ died for our sins and he was raised on the third day out of the message of the gospel, you're left with nothing. And what's interesting, when you listen carefully to what that book and that movie are trying to say, what you end up with is a God who does not care about sin or even seem to acknowledge sin. You have a God who is not just nor nor even seems to care about justice 
You have a God who never sends anyone to hell and accepts everyone to heaven just because he loves. That's the American God. That's the false God of false Christianity. It is not the gospel that Paul's talking about and has nothing to do with the New Testament. Churches that give up the gospel should just become social services organizations and give up the name Christian on their signs and stop calling themselves churches because all they're doing is really superficial, temporary, good deeds, kind works maybe. All they are is a common cause type social organization. But without the gospel, there's nothing eternal about it. Without the gospel, there's no spiritual presence there. There's no spiritual power there. But I want to focus as I come to the last section. That's, that's the origin of the gospel from Christ himself. The content of the gospel, Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But then I want to talk about the last section because I was really struck by that as I studied this passage. That Paul can't help himself but get very personal. Even emotional. And I think if you just read this in a dry tone, you don't get the thrust of what he's saying. I think Paul, as he reflected on the origin and content of the gospel, ended up on his knees in tears, I think. And that's what you have in this last paragraph, is the effect of the gospel. He first of all mentions, when, I, when he mentions his own, is he, he, he says, I saw the resurrected Christ. He says, but as to one untimely born, and you can translate that as one abnormally born. He's saying there's something unusual about how I saw Christ and how I was called to be an apostle of Christ. It wasn't like the other apostles' qualifications or call. And we know from the beginning of the book of Acts that the apostles were to be those who were with Christ from the beginning and that they had seen the resurrected Christ. Well, Paul didn't quite qualify. He certainly didn't qualify in the first one because he was an enemy of Christ until after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. But he also didn't see the risen Christ until after his ascension. He actually saw a vision of him on the road to Damascus. So Paul's call was unusual. And because of that, that's one of the reasons in 2 Corinthians, he spends a lot of time defending his apostleship. It's, it's still genuine, even though it was somewhat unusual. But that's not what he's focused on in this last paragraph, beginning in verse 9. What he's focused on is his own extreme unworthiness to even know Christ, let alone serve him. He says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now Paul, as we've seen in earlier passages in 1 Corinthians, he tended to use hyperbole sometimes to make a point. This isn't hyperbole. Paul felt this to the depth of his soul. I am the least of the apostles. I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I want you to think about for a second, what's the worst sin you could ever commit? And your mind goes to things like murder, rape, stealing, all kinds of terrible, terrible sins. I would ask you to consider that attacking the church of Jesus Christ is worse. Remember what, Paul, what Jesus said, the very first words that, G, that Paul ever heard from Jesus on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you attacking me? Is there a worse sin in the universe than attacking the risen Son of God, the Savior of his people? Is there a worse sin than that? 
Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners. He says that elsewhere. I'm the chief of sinners. He was literally one of Christ's worst enemies before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. He was working with all his passion, all his zeal, all his resources to stop the spread of the gospel. Reminds me of a movie I saw many years ago called Outbreak. Dustin Hoffman, Hoffman, remember that movie? They're trying to stop an outbreak of a disease in a small town up in the Northwest. And and the, the backstory of the whole thing is that there was this evil military establishment that actually could have cured the disease that's killing everybody in town, but they didn't want to let the cure out because they didn't want their weapon, their, their chemical weapon, basically, to be neutralized. And this is far worse. Paul was stopping the spread of the gospel, the only hope that mankind has for anything. He was working hard to stop it. Why are you persecuting me? But the same Christ not only forgave him because Christ died on the cross for Paul's sins, he not only called him to be a child of God, to be a part of his kingdom, but he actually called him to be an apostle. Amazing grace. This is the passion behind Paul's zeal for the gospel. This is the passion behind Paul's love for Christ, Paul's love for the church. It's the incredible, amazing grace that God had had towards him. He never forgot the depth of his sin and depravity and the great, great price that was paid for his salvation. It was all of grace. You see, that's what happens when you take the teachings of Christ dying for our sins and being raised on the third day out of the teaching of the church in order to try to be more acceptable to your culture is that you take grace out of your church because that's the only source of grace. You know, as, as we went through the process of searching for and, and interviewing and calling an assistant pastor, we had many confirmations that Owen was the guy along the way. But I'll tell you one of them that maybe some of you didn't even think about, but to me was a powerful confirmation we had the right guy. It was when during, when he was being interviewed, they had question and answers with the congregation, as those of you that were here for that. You might remember that when Owen was asked about his background, was talking about how the Lord had led him out of sin and led him to himself, he actually almost broke down, became emotional, genuinely emotional, choked up as he talked about the grace of God towards him. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's the guy. That's the kind of heart for the gospel that I want preaching from this pulpit and shepherding the people of God. But Owen's not going to take any credit for that. Don't take credit for saying, I deserve hell for eternity. He says what Paul says in verse 10. This is how you should always answer somebody who says, how are you? Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I want that written on my tombstone when I die. By the grace of God, I am, and notice that's in present tense when I die. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Acknowledging Paul's unworthiness does not in any way take away from what the, you know, it only amplifies what the grace of God had done in him and through him. 
The grace of God didn't stop working when it saved him and atoned for his sins and made him a child of God and brought him into the kingdom. The grace of God continued to work in him every day to recreate him, to transform him, to be an agent of this paradise restoration project that God had been working on. Has anyone else's life in history had a bigger impact than the Apostle Paul besides Jesus Christ? Anyone besides Jesus Christ that had a bigger impact than the Apostle Paul? Think about it. God took the gospel from the nation of Israel to the nations through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul planted and strengthened churches throughout the entire Roman Empire, the established Western civilization. God used Paul to spread the gospel to the ends of the empire. Paul wrote 13 letters that now make up more than half of our New Testament. Has anybody had a bigger impact for the kingdom of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ than Paul did? And that's what Paul is reveling in here. I was the worst of sinners, and yet I've had the greatest impact. But then you notice he's quick to say, but not I. I worked hard. I suffered greatly and worked hard. But it was not I, but the grace of God working in me and through me. That's the effect of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. May the gospel always be faithfully taught, proclaimed, and lived here at Oakwood Presbyterian Church. It is God's formula for redemption and restoration of the universe. And I just hope you leave here with a greater sense of privilege today. Say it's been entrusted into my hands. This is the message that's going to change the world. It will change the world. It will make all things right. It will lead to the kingdom of God being established in the universe without sin, without defect, without corruption, without suffering. And this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel which we have received. To use the words of Paul, we've received it. It's in the gospel in which we stand and it's the gospel by which we are being saved. And it is the gospel outside of which there is no salvation. And Paul says, hold fast to it. Hold fast to it. Guard the deposit and spread it far and wide. That is our responsibility. But boy, what a privilege. Let's pray. Father, it seems so little to say thank you for the gospel. This cosmic, awesome, amazing gift that you have given to us as individuals by which we have conquered sin and death. This amazing gift, this formula for redemption and restoration that you've placed in our hands, the means by which you are spreading the power of the life-giving power of Christ to the ends of the earth, Lord, we are unworthy. But Lord, help us to focus upon your grace at work in us and through us. Help us to trust more deeply in your promises. And Lord, may we in humility accomplish great things in State College, Penn State, Center County, in Pennsylvania, and beyond. Because we have been faithful to receive, to guard, and to proclaim and transfer this powerful message to those who need to hear it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.